too old to rock and roll, too young to die. It's the I'm in love with that song podcast back to take another deep dive into a rock and roll classic. This time we're listening to My God by Jethro Tull. My name is Brad Page. I'm the host of the show. In each episode, I pick a favorite song and we do some intensive listening together to see what we can discover. Now, I don't pretend to be a musical expert. I'm closer to a sandwich maker than a surgeon when it comes to this stuff. So we don't get into music theory here. We're just focusing on the arrangements, the performances, and the production choices that go into making a song great. On this episode, we're going deep into Jethro Tull and My God. You from your social graces Whoa, and I sense you're used to blame Jethro Tull had already released three albums, but it was their fourth album, Aqualung that broke through to a wider audience and earned their status as one of the great classic bands. By this point, band leader Ian Anderson had found his voice as a songwriter, and the Aqualung album featured the band's already established hard rock sounds side by side with folkier acoustic songs and progressive rock elements. The album was recorded at Island Studios in London at the same time Led Zeppelin was recording their legendary fourth album, in the other part of the same studio. The album was released in March of 1971, and it would become the best-selling album of Jethro Tull's career. Three tracks from the album went on to become classic rock staples, Locomotive Breath, Cross-Eyed Mary, and the title cut, Aqualung. But we're not discussing any of those tunes on this episode. The album is often thought of as a concept album, but it's really not. There are some shared ideas and themes throughout the record, including three songs on side two of the album that center around religion. And we're going to be listening to one of those songs. My God is the song that opens side two. It's the longest song on the album, running just over seven minutes. And though the song is angry, sarcastic, and pulls no punches, it's not really an anti-God song. To quote Ian Anderson... I was not being anti-Jesus Christ, just being anti this sort of cleaned up version of religion, the one for mass consumption, and more worryingly, the one for consumption by children, end quote. He also said he was having a go at the people who misled him. The band includes Martin Barr on lead guitar, Jeffrey Hammond on bass, John Evan on piano, Clive Bunker on drums, and Ian Anderson on acoustic guitar, flute, and lead vocals. Anderson also produced the album. Both Hammond and Evan were new band members. This was the first full album with this particular lineup, and it was also the last album that Clive Barker played drums on for Tull. The song opens with Ian Anderson's acoustic guitar playing this octave riff in A. He speeds up and then slows down. It sounds like a guitar player fiddling around or exploring, trying to find the right notes to express himself. But I'm sure this was all intentional.
Now on this next bit, he's going to land on a note that's not in the same key. It's going to be dissonant and feel unsettling. Here comes that note. Now he begins playing the main riff for the song, and that note becomes part of the riff. People, what have you done? Locked him in his golden cage. Golden Ian Anderson's vocals have always been intense and dramatic, but I think on this track, there's an extra level of emotion because the subject was important to him. Unlike other songs, he wasn't just telling a story or playing a character here. He was sharing ideas that really meant something to him. Now, the timing is interesting here because up until that last phrase, the previous phrases were two measures long with four beats in each measure, like this. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. But the last phrase of that verse is six beats long. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four. Using these kinds of changes creates a sense of the ground shifting under your feet. Even if you're not paying that much attention, somewhere in the back of your head, this throws off your expectations a bit, and your brain senses it, even if you don't. He is the god of nothing, if that's all that you can see. You are the god of everything, he's inside you and me. Now there's something else going on with that phrase, but I have no idea what it is. Just try tapping your foot to it and see what happens. You are the god of everything, he's inside you and me. We're either adding or losing a beat there, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a musicologist, but it definitely throws you off. You are the god of everything, he's inside you and me. Nice build up on the piano, then quiet again for the guitar. So lean upon him gently. And don't call on him to save me. 
finally the band enters. It's an unexpected choice to have the band enter there at the end of the vocal line rather than at the beginning of the verse. So lean upon him gently And don't call on him to save The flute makes its first appearance here. And I like the way the band makes a quick pause there. We get a different chord change at the end of that verse before the band breaks and Martin Barr takes over for a guitar solo. Listen to how they've mixed the track. The guitar doesn't sit directly in the center. It leans to one side while the echoes are heavier in the other channel. Now Ian Anderson takes the lead on the flute. Notice how they've changed the main riff behind the flute solo. It's still the same rhythm, but that unsettling note at the end of the riff has been replaced, which lightens the mood of the riff. Next up is an extended flute solo complete with clearly audible breathing and interjections from Ian Anderson. Anderson started as a guitar player like a million other wannabe rock stars in the 60s, but rather than being just another guitar player, he decided to find something that would be much more distinctive, so he tried his hand at the flute. I'm pretty sure he was self-taught, but he definitely didn't care about traditional or proper techniques. His flute playing is full of gasps and grunts and breathing noises that you'll never hear from a classical or properly trained player. But that just makes his playing all the more unique. Midpoint in the flute solo, there's a clear transition. The mood of the solo changes, but the sound of the room or the space changes too. It could be that each section was recorded in a different recording studio. That could explain it. Or it could be an intentional production change to enhance the shift in mood for the second half of the solo. The first half of the flute solo is more aggressive, more rock and roll where the second half is more austere, more church-like. The change is mostly noticeable in the reverb, as the tone and the depth of the reverb changes between the two parts. 
See if you can notice the difference. Here's a bit of the first part. And here's a clip from the second half. The space is bigger and brighter in the first half. Now let's listen to that transition. It changes right here. The addition of the choir makes it feel like you're in a church setting. There's an additional overdubbed flute here. There's a bit of a musical in-joke here where they move from the root note, in this case A, to the fourth chord, D. That's a standard blues transition, and probably Ian Anderson's way of contrasting traditional stately English religious music with the more raw American blues. Now the band is about to come back in, starting with the drums. Turn to just the piano, acoustic guitar, and flute for the final verse. And the graven image, you know, with his plastic crucifix. And the band comes in right after that first line, just as they did in the second verse. Confuses me as to who and where and why As to how he gets his kicks I like the sound of disgust he makes at the end of this next line Confessing to the endless sin The endless winding sounds You'll be One final guitar break for Martin Barr. And the band comes to rest on that same note that's been unsettling us through the whole song. But the flutes never resolve. Jethro Tull, my God. 
The very first concert that I ever had tickets for was Jethro Tull in 1979. I was looking forward to going to my first show, but the night before, Tull was playing at Madison Square Garden, and some fan threw a rose on stage and hit Ian Anderson in the eye. They had to cancel the show that we had tickets for. They did end up rescheduling that show, but I didn't get to go. Eventually, though, I did get to see Tull about a year later, and I still have a lot of love for this band. I'd like to thank Alan Moore and his great book on the Aqualung album that's part of the 33 and a Third book series. That book was really helpful doing research for this episode. Well, once again, I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of the I'm in Love with That Song podcast. You can find the show on Facebook, leave comments there, or write a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That helps more people to find the show, so I really appreciate that. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, let's close out the show with the complete, uninterrupted version of My God by Jethro Tull. Request your answer.
And the graven image you know With his plastic crucifix He's got him fixed Confuses me as to who and where and why As to how he gets his kicks He gets his kicks Confessing to the endless sin The endless winding sounds <laughs> Be praying.